Welcome back to another episode of All My Relations. We hope you're all doing well. We're so grateful that you have joined us on this journey and are back for another episode. Folks, today we're discussing blood quantum. Bum, dun, 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 bum. Dun. <laughs> oh, we both did it. <laughs> um, one time, Adrian, I was at Pepperdine giving a talk and one of the very important people the president said to me how do i enroll the full-blooded indians where do i find them (laughs) in front of a large group of people enroll them in college yeah oh god yeah he said well you know like we really want to increase our native population but you know it when we are looking for native students, we we can't ever get the full bloods. <laughs> oh, jeez! <laughs> I was like, uh. Oh, <laughs> so yeah, today we're going to be talking about blood quantum, which is something that is a topic that comes up almost every time I interact with any people, um, <laughs> but also a really big and important issue facing our communities because blood quantum is often used for the ways that we enroll in our tribal nations. It's used to determine citizenship. And I don't think a lot of folks, because it becomes so normalized, like stop to really think about where this concept even comes from and like what it actually means and the implications of it because it's become so normalized and just a part of our everyday existence as Native people. Yeah, it's it's so deeply ingrained in our colonial history that some of us don't even know like the very origin of how this began. But we know for sure that notions of blood quantum were not our fundamental ways of understanding our sense of belonging and kinship in most of our communities. I know for me, for sure, uh, you know, our clan systems, our longhouse systems were the ways that we uh, identified who belonged. And most of that had to do with who our parents are. And we have somehow fallen away from this from this belief system. And, well, it's not somehow. It was done very systemically. And we're going to talk about that today with a group of folks that that specialize in this field and have litigated in this field, but also scientists. And it's something we'll talk a lot about on this episode, but we do want to make sure that we start out by saying that this is not something that has any roots in actual science or biology. You can't actually quantify the amount of native blood that someone has, and it definitely is not something that can be done through genetics or DNA either. And it's a concept that came from outside of our communities. It's not something that came from within Native communities. It was designed by colonizers to erase us, to breed us out, to have less resources that they had to provide for Native communities. Even so, it's something that has deep roots and a lot of defenders in Indian country. So we'll talk about that as well with our guests. And we should probably even take a step back because I know that we have a fair amount of non-Native listeners who might not even know what we mean when we say blood quantum. This idea of blood quantum is the notion that you can somehow quantify the amount of quote-unquote Native blood that a person possesses. And the idea is that you start with a, again, quote unquote, full blood ancestor. And then with each passing generation, uh, depending on who that ancestor has children with, uh, if it's a non-native person, then it becomes a subtractive identity. So then the next generation is half blood and then quarter and then eighth and then 16th and then 32nd and on and on and on. It's something that is written on our certificate of degree of Indian blood that we all have um, that I think non-natives sometimes don't know that we all literally have a certificate of degree of Indian blood that comes from the federal government that has our blood percentage on it. Isn't that strange? People will say, yeah, I'm a card carrying Indian, meaning I can prove that I have this degree of Indian blood. And it's very 
very, um, well, it's exhausting and demeaning to, to think about showing your pedigree. Yeah, exactly. Sorry. (laughs) All my relations. Yeah, so we have on the show today Charlotte Logan, who is Aquasasni Mohawk and a molecular biologist working in upstate New York. Charlotte has a master's in molecular and cellular biology from Brandeis University and has spent a decade specializing in the field of small RNA and mRNA processing. She recently made a life-altering choice by stepping away from her career and enrolling in the Onondaga language program, where she spent two years studying the Onondaga language. She recently returned to biochemistry and molecular biology as a senior research support specialist. Also joining us on this episode is Gabe Galanda. Gabe belongs to the Round Valley Indian tribes of California, descending from the Nomlaki and Konkow tribes. As a partner at Galanda Broadman, Gabe is an attorney whose legal practice represents tribal governments, businesses, and citizens often working on complex multi-party litigation and crisis management. Gabe is a prolific writer on tribal litigation and sovereignty and Indian civil rights issues, having been published over 100 times in national periodicals like the National Law Journal and Business Law Today. And Skyping in with us is Professor David E. Wilkins, who is Lumbee and holds the McKnight Presidential Professorship in American Indian Studies at the University of Minnesota. Professor Wilkins' research and teaching interests include indigenous politics and governance, federal Indian policy and law, comparative politics, and diplomacy and constitutional development. He most recently co-authored with Heidi Stark a book titled American Indian Politics and the American Political System, third edition. Lastly, we have Tommy Miller, who is a citizen of the Confederated Tribes of the Colville Reservation, and his Seattle law practice focuses on litigation, Indian law, government contracts, and procurement, which touch on a wide variety of issues, including treaty rights. He received his JD and bachelor's degrees from Harvard University. In 2014, he published the American Indian Law Journal, Beyond Blood Quantum, The Legal and Political Implications of Expanding Tribal Enrollment. As we get rolling on this episode, we're going to take you back to the conversations with our guests in our studio space in Tacoma and bring together the different perspectives on this really complex and complicated issue of blood quantum. As a faculty member, I teach courses on critical race theory and indigenous methodologies, and I have to teach a lot of times about the origins of racial formations in our country as it relates to native communities specifically. And one of the things that I often point out to students is the ways that the U.S. court system has really played a huge role in making blood quantum, quote unquote, real. And one of the things that I point to is uh, the very first line of Justice Alito's opinion in the baby Veronica case. And he says, quote, this case is about a little girl, parentheses, baby girl, who is classified as an Indian because she is 1.2 percent, parentheses, 3,256th Cherokee. So to me, I think that that line is really important in pointing out how the court system uses blood quantum uh, to their advantage in these court cases. We ask about these origins in the court and what are the ways that the court system in the U.S. has made blood quantum into this quote-unquote real thing. In the conversation that follows, you're going to hear Tommy's voice first, followed by Gabe and also Professor Wilkins. Sure. So there are some some examples of it being used at various points throughout the 1800s by the federal government in certain contexts. But the way, as I understand it, that it really came to especially impact Native communities was with the allotment period in Indian law, where the goal was to subdivide reservations into individual parcels and then sell off the quote-unquote surplus to essentially break down the tribal system and break down native land ownership. As part of that, they realized that the land wasn't being distributed into white ownership at the same rate that they had expected. So they put into effect a system of blood quantum where 
someone who was full native blood would have their land held in trust for a certain period of time. Someone who was half native blood would have their land held in trust for less time, and so on and so forth, based on the idea that the more Indian blood you had, the less competent you could possibly be and the less control you should have over your own land. Mm. Moving forward in the 1930s, during what was, for the most part, a more positive period of Indian law, they had the Indian Reorganization Act, under which tribes established the constitutions that most of them now have. But the Bureau of Indian Affairs had kind of a boilerplate system that they wanted tribes to adopt, and that included in it a system of blood quantum for tribal membership. Mm -hmm. And that's how, as I understand it, blood quantum came to be the standard across the country for tribal membership. Instead of the more traditional kinship-based methods that most tribes employed before that, Mm -hmm. it was replaced with a very pseudoscientific, clear distinction between who should belong and who shouldn't based on this idea of blood quantum. So uh, there's quite a lot there, but I would say the the first racial formation as it relates to who we were then kinship societies and now who we are today, quote-unquote citizens of quote-unquote nations, uh, was started in the the 1820s and 1830s by then Chief Justice John Marshall. Mm -hmm. And some of the language, um, as you all know, even referred to us as heathens. So if you carry forward that legacy all the way to the Baby Veronica case and now the Bracken case, um, the Supreme Court has decimated, at least legally speaking, the notion that we were kinship societies. Mm-hmm. It was much more convenient for the United States government, including Chief Justice John Marshall, to make us nations or even governments, which by treaty uh, could cause us to cede millions and millions of indigenous homelands. And then come allotment time, quote unquote, pulverize the remaining land base, thereby decimating our ancestral connection to our homelands. Uh, and then over the course of the 19th, um, the remaining of the 19th century, of the entire 20th century, racialize us. And you now see that in the Bracken decision that everybody is rightfully up in arms about. Um, the entire notion of Indian identity has been to dispossess of, of our land and to extinguish our existence. And blood quantum is a predominant way that that has happened to us since the late 1800s, certainly since 1934. And my biggest concern, legally speaking, is less to do with what the federal courts are doing to us by way of racialization or blood quantum analysis. It's what we're doing to ourselves by carrying out that legacy of blood quantum and now using blood quantum to decimate our own people in terms of those who have already belonged and to prevent those yet unborn from ever belonging. And what makes it particularly complicated, I just reread uh, a couple of articles by Paul Spruan, who's an attorney for the Navajo Nation. He's written quite a bit about about the blood quantum issue as well, and and Matthew Snip, who's at Stanford, who's uh, does a lot of work in the area of census data, it wrote quite a bit about the blood quantum in the 80s and so on. But this is where I think things get mixed up between our racial status and our political and governmental status, um, because we know that kinship matters to us, and therefore, by definition, who we're related to genealogically. In uh, you know matters a great deal, um, and we also know that we are have inherently always been governing bodies, even though we didn't call ourselves governments necessarily, because as Ella Gloria says in, in her book, speaking of Indians, you know you know we were related to one another, and that was all the government we ever had. The kinship system really provided that framework uh, that linked us all, but it was a linkage that was based on both genealogy as well as on marriage as well as the people that you were, you know, that you just hung out with, uh, people who, who were your friends. So it was a broad and encompassing framework. Um, and uh, But the element of blood, as it has been laid onto us by the federal forces, uh, not so much during the Allotment Act, per se, but it really kicks in, according to my research in the early 1900s, over educational provisions in which the federal government was trying to reduce the amount of expenditures that it was having to pay out for Native students to go to school. Uh, and then in Cato Sales policy in 1917, he comes up with uh, the, the competency commissions where you see blood quantum really begin to get, begin to infiltrate federal policy and federal rules and regulations. And then IRA with the half-blood provision, they just said anybody who is not a member of a recognized tribe, 
you can still be identified as an Indian for federal purposes if you have one if you can prove one half or more native blood. And that's where my tribe, the Lumbees, who we're a quasi-recognized na- native nation, uh, and yet in the 1930s, they, uh, John Collier and Felix Cohen sent down a physical anthropologist to study our head size and our brain size and our eyebrow size, the texture of our hair, uh, to try and determine whether or not we met the one-half blood quantum criteria. Uh, and it was an insane, uh, you know, ridiculous procedure in which, um, you know, some 22 Lumbees, uh, who were then not known as Lumbees, were, were determined to be uh, native uh, individuals, and the others were not, and yet they were all related to one another by the kinship system of the Lumbee people. So it's a complicated and a bizarre process. And until and unless, as Gabe says, we find some way to get a hold of this monster and move away from fractions, because blood is simply... Uh, you know, uh, uh, a body part that keeps us alive, right? It doesn't determine our values or our identity. Something much more uh, does that for our peoples, which is our land and our languages and our, and our, and our cultures. So. Absolutely. And I think it's important to point out along those lines how in early America, the racial systems that we have developed very differently for black folks and for native folks. So like in the early colonies, it was the white settlers, it was enslaved Africans, it was native peoples were the three groups. And it was advantageous for the settlers to have less native folks because native folks were useful for their land. So you wanted less native people because that meant that you had more access to the land and resources that those native people possessed. On the other hand, for enslaved Africans, you wanted more of them because they were able to work that land and to then develop capital and wealth and resources from that land. So because of this, you have these two opposite systems that have developed where it's blood quantum, which is subtractive. So you're making less native people. And the one drop rule, which is expansive, it's the idea in black communities that if you have one drop of African ancestry, you are categorized as black. And that was a system that was created to create more enslaved Africans to be able to work that land. So you want less native folks, more black folks, and that's how you get these two systems of classification. And they're things that are still in place in many ways today and are things that did not come from either of our communities and weren't there to serve either of our communities. They were there to serve white supremacy and settler colonialism. And both of those notions, one drop or blood quantum, are not only racial formations, they're racial fictions. It's not as if in 1705 in Virginia, a mulatto was one drop African and 99 drops Caucasian. It's not as if in 1934 that any native was one half, in terms of the blood running through their veins, Scandinavian and one half Nomalaki and Concao, or one quarter Nomalaki and one quarter Concao. Um, That's not the way, at least I understand, our biology to work. It's a complete fiction. This was a perfect time to transition to our conversation with Charlotte. We asked Charlotte if she could just take a moment to debunk these very unreal ideas around quantifiable blood or notions of blood purity. And in Charlotte's way of being a scientist, she's going to tell us how to understand these notions. It's kind of confusing to me how DNA was taken as something that could be quantified in, into a race, because race is, is, from what I understand, is completely social construct. Yeah. So I want to start with, let's just talk about the direct-to-consumer testing business. What they've done thus far in American society is kind of jump the gun. A lot of geneticists, actually, they're not even ready for this, what's happening the ethics that come with the knowledge that comes from looking at a genome closely or comparing genomes. If you were going to get a direct-to-consumer is something that you can do at home, and then you mail it off. The problem is that they're not really, really high definition. So they're kind of like a blurry picture of something. But because the American public is so scientifically illiterate, they will take, you know, whatever you know, these direct-to-consumer companies spin 
as truth. Now you've got companies spinning this idea of ethnicity and race in a way that is extremely misleading. They don't actually have the information to give you a very accurate definition of what area of the world you are from or most like. So I'm not sure when uh, people decided to uh, start saying that you could have this, you know, 20% European or 30% something else. Um, but I can tell you the I can tell you about the human genome, kind of give you a better understanding about what what's in there. So let's say we have around 3.3.2 to 3.5 billion base pairs per genome. Of that 3.2 billion, only one percent of that is actually coding DNA, which means that it it produces genes. So we have around 20,000 genes in the human genome. And we actually have, depending on where you're from, we have ancient genome DNA as well. So um, we don't just have a genome in our nucleus of our cells. We also have a mitochondrial genome, which is separately inherited. There's 37 genes on a mitochondrial genome. So if only 1% of your genome is actually an actual gene, there's all this in-between DNA. And all the in-between DNA is kind of um, viral DNA. So we, if you wanted to count by base pairs and make a percentage, you every human is probably about 9% viral DNA. Uh, we also have bacterial DNA, um, which is the mitochondrial DNA that's bacterial. In origin, I think, I don't know if you can call it bacterial anymore. <laughs> um, and then we have these huge spans of DNA in our, um, in our genomes that are actually like viral graveyards. We call them transposons. And they, what the transposons like to do is they, they jump out of the genome and switch places. So they're kind of like constantly playing leapfrog. And so the transposons are actually what drives our evolution because they like to jump in the middle of a gene and maybe the mutation will be positive or negative. We don't know, you know. So in terms of, of genome and, and saying that race is something that can be divided up, it, it doesn't make sense to me because the functional part of the genome is, is, is all the, the actual genes. And if you want to compare functional genomes, we're almost identical. You know, we have so many, that's where we, that's where we have the most homology is, is within our genes, the 20,000 genes that we have. Um, we also carry genes from, from long ago. Um, we care, well, it's not all of us, but a lot of us carry Denisovan DNA as well as uh, Neanderthal DNA. So that's probably anywhere from two to highest I've seen 10%. And that just means that how many megabases there are in the genome. So you can actually quantify that. But the borders around race, those are more gray areas, maybe areas. That how do you, what, it, what genes make up a race? Have we had that definition yet, you know? Charlie, I'm wondering, um, so I know in a lot of our communities, there's been this movement of these direct-to-consumer DNA tests kind of coming into communities and saying, uh, we would like you to participate and get your genome map um, because we need more native participation in our database. And is that a good thing? So right now, because we don't have the ethics of DNA testing, in our communities or even mainstream America. We don't have the ethics nailed down. And the implications for the future of what these, what giving over your genomic information will hold, we don't know what that looks like. 
because of the way that direct-to-consumer testing or DNA testing is being used for disenrollment or enrollment, I think it's safe to to just not put our information out there. It's safer to to be um, conservative about about who and how we let look at our genomes as Native people just because we've been um, taken advantage of in the past. So I would advise people to be very careful, and I would actually advise people not to use the direct-to-consumer testing if there are, you know, Native people. Just keep us out of the system because until we figure out and get things under control in our own communities in terms of enrollment and disenrollment, I don't think that that information should be out there to be used against us in certain ways. And because it's not necessarily just your DNA that you're putting into the system. Um, There was a study recently that 80, I think it's 80 percent of white people in uh, what is now known as the United States can be identified based on their relatives who have taken direct to consumer DNA tests. And so when you are opting into this system, you're also bringing your entire family with you in terms of then law enforcement and the government and all sorts of whoever having access to that information. So it's not just a a singular decision either. Yeah, that's true. That's very true and a very good point. The haplotypes that they found for Native people, the original five or six mothers that they say that we came from, those are actually mined from data sets that were old. They actually use data sets as well. If you give yourself over to be used for uh, medical research, I've actually seen studies where they're using those genomes to mine for uh, Neanderthal genomes. So they can actually mine for ancient genomes through databases like like the ones created with, with the 1000 Genomes Project and the direct-to-consumer data sets. So it's just better that we we don't enter that that arena until we're ready ethically for the repercussions, because there are a lot. From my understanding, um, each of these companies also uses a different database. Um, They have kind of their own proprietary database of genomes that they use. Um, And then on top of that, you were talking about the way that mitochondrial DNA decompose or decomposes is the wrong word, I know, but like breaks down, mutates. Um, So we're not necessarily all inheriting it the same way, like from a single ancestor. So there could potentially be people in your family that have inherited that gene differently. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, so if they're using mitochondrial DNA, because there's only 15,000 base pairs, there's actually a a very, very significant probability that you are going to have the same haplogroup as other people. I think the difference between maybe two unrelated human beings is around 15 to 18 um, mutations, and that's it. So it's a small um, data set. That's why it's very, very general, and that's why the mitochondrial DNA haplogroup system is, is flawed. And it's also flawed because what they're learning is that there's pieces of that genome that mutate faster, and there's pieces of that genome that mutate slower. So in that case, the, the idea the idea that we would have a lineage of certain number of mutations between generations is not empirically determined. That's theoretical. Also, they're finding out, which is, this is really cool to me, that what they thought was just a matrilineal passage of genomic um, information isn't. So there's actually evidence of mitochondrial DNA contribution from the patrilineal side. So usually when uh, the, the sperm and the egg come together, the sperm gets in there, it has a lot of mitochondria because that's what keeps the tail moving. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when it gets into the egg, it gets completely destroyed by the system inside of the egg. And so there's no DNA. But that's not true because not every egg is equipped with what it needs to destroy that genomic DNA. And so there's leakage. And then when a leakage occurs, that DNA actually integrates or um, recombines with the maternal mitochondrial DNA. So that's, and yeah, so the guy that actually discovered the recombinase for the mitochondrial 
DNA actually works at SUNY Upstate, Dr. Cheng. He's pretty cool. So what I, as a non-scientist, am understanding from all of this is basically that the ways the public has been sold the science on this totally don't line up with the actual science. So those like Ancestry.com commercials that show like a teepee and like old native folks in buckskin or whatever and imply that you can use this to figure out your native ancestry. That's not what the science is telling us. Very lightly. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very messy, quick sketch. The science is not complete to be able to give any kind of accurate picture of how much, and I'm not going to say percent Native American you are, how much genetic contribution you had to an ancestor. That's completely different. Because Those are two different questions. Yeah. Also, we do not keep all genetic contributions. So the, the nature of evolution is that what, what works sticks and what doesn't work gets, gets passed to the wayside. And to say that you're this percentage, you're 10% versus your grandmother who was 50%, well, what if there was some, you know, genetic loss that, that was good for you that happened? Does that mean that you're less, you're less native because your body didn't keep whatever contribution? That also blurs the, the nice lines that they're trying to draw around the idea that you can quantify how much Native American you are. And I know um, Dr. Talbert, who we also talked with, um, she has a consortium of Native genetic researchers that she works with. Um, And I think that the conversations they're having are really powerful around how can we do it differently? So how can we do genetic research that benefits Native communities and we have control over the data and we know where it's going and what questions are being asked and how they're being asked and how the data is being used? Because there is a lot of power in this type of research if it's done correctly and with the community in mind. Right. Well, they're actually not even looking at any genes at all. They're looking at the pieces in between, the spans between genes that are different. So because it's in between a gene, it can change and not be really detrimental. And so what they can do is look at, let's say, someone from 10,000 years ago, and they have this specific gene. And then when it's inherited, it actually shrinks a little bit because... Uh, every time that a human is created, the genomes shuffle like a deck of cards. And some shuffle in chunks, some shuffle, you know, whole decks. Will, you know, so if you're going to think about it, pieces get handed down, but they don't always get, they don't stay intact. And so what they're doing is they're saying, oh, six to ten generations ago, uh, that would, you know, they, you know, this how long it took for that gene to break apart. But the thing, the drawbacks to that are that they actually don't know what the, um, they don't know how the DNA is, is splitting. Mm-hmm. So they can't say exactly where it's happening or how long it takes to happen. So the, the time between mutations is their clock to figure out how many generations back something is. And it's, it's not real. It's completely theoretical. Mm-hmm. And so they don't have any real, real data to, to back the, up their mitochondrial you know clock or you know every time a paper is published on something it's a different person's perspective of the molecular clock or you know this idea of um of anthropological anthropological perspective Mm -hmm. so some people are closer to the truth than others but you don't know who those people are really until you see more than one data point so they can they can pinpoint where geographically they can put you and that's compared to everybody else's genomes but people move and so those people who live like England now what their genomes look like present day versus what it looked like a hundred years ago um, it's different drastically different but those are still English people do you know what I mean and so they can place you where you exist now, who are your closest relatives are now, but that doesn't, that doesn't translate to race for me. 
So what we can take away from Charlotte's scientific expertise is the understanding that the scientific methods and understanding just doesn't really match what we as a society have come to think of this concept of blood quantum or even genetic ancestry. There's too little information, too many factors at play, and no matter what, from the basis, there is no scientific foundation for us to be able to build this construction of blood quantum. DNA, I'm, I'm not a hard scientist, I'm a social scientist, but we know that DNA can be useful for crime and it can be useful de for determining paternity, but it's not going to tell us a damn thing about identity. No. It's just not going to do that. We know that race is, in fact, a social construct, and the best definition I heard of race was an article I read where the author said that race is a pigment of our imagination. <laughs> and I think that's absolutely, I think it's absolutely true um, because it really was based on kinship, and it was the kinship that extended beyond our immediate, um, you know, um, genealogical, genealogical families. Um, and so I think we've got to quickly harness these arguments to convince tribal governments to not keep going down that road because one tribe will pick up a DNA testing procedure, next thing you know, four more tribes have picked it up, and I think my figure of 25 is probably under-numbered. I think there are probably more tribal governments that are employing DNA testing because they think that's the next wave, um, and we need to get past that, and we need to get past the whole concept of race as a scientific uh, construct. Uh, and return back to the fundamental issues of determining identity based on concepts that we all know inherently uh, in our in our hearts. Uh, well, in my line of work, having defended uh, six hundred or more relatives uh, from up and down the West Coast out to the Great Lakes and beyond, from a process of disenrollment. Um, it epitomizes how far we have strayed from who we were before 1492 or 1787 or the 1830s or 1934. Uh, as Dr. Wilkins has written and has just said, we were kinship societies. There was nothing greater than us as our relationship to one another. There was no government or overlord dictating how we behaved. Um, we were societies. We were communities. We were religions. Uh, and we were interrelated with, with one another very simply because of biology. You were who you were uh, because of to whom you were born and to where you were born. And to the extent it wasn't there, it wasn't a biological connection. As Dr. Wilkins alluded, there was intermarriage, there was adoption. There were other modes of welcoming people into a kinship society who weren't even of, uh, of that biology. In the last few hundred years, we have strayed um, dramatically far away from that. And we are now way more exclusive than we are, are inclusive because our governments are uh, now dominated by uh, colonial norms, uh, foreign constitutional norms, and capitalism. Mm -hmm. uh, and as a result, we are now getting rid of our own people at an unprecedented rate. Dr. Wilkins' scholarship suggests 80 tribes, which is about 15% of the federally recognized tribes in our country, have gotten rid of anywhere between nine, ten, and eleven thousand relatives, mm -hmm. predominantly over the last decade. And it's no coincidence that during that time, the Indian gaming industry has blossomed into a multi-billion-dollar industry. Mm -hmm. We are now treating each other in not just colonial ways, but capitalistic ways, even to the point where we have people auditing. We have CPAs auditing membership roles to then tell tribal politicians who belongs and who doesn't. That is how far we have strayed from uh, where we were before, um, before 1492. Mm. Yeah. Um, that's well put, my man. I, <laughs> uh, you, you laid out the, the basic numbers. Um, I began tracking, um, first it was banishment, um, which first popped on the scene um, in 1991, I think it was, involving a case in Washington State where a couple of uh, Native youth beat up a pizza delivery uh, men and were banished to a reservation right off uh, the, the, the coast of, uh, uh, right outside of Seattle. 
Um, and I started, and then I, there was another case of banishment involving the, the Atlanta Pueblo down in, in Texas. And then a year or two later, there was another banishment. And then there was a case involving, uh, that, that wound up in, in a federal uh, district uh, court in, in New York State involving Seneca, five Seneca were banished for having allegedly committed treason against the nation, and they were banished and escorted off the reservation. And then all of a sudden, I, and I began to keep a file then uh, of these of these these uh, these banishments. And then all of a sudden, I stopped thinking about banishments, and then it turned into disenrollment, because by now, by the by, we're in the middle of the 1990s. A few tribes are beginning to accrue great uh, economic wealth because of, of gaming revenue, predominantly, particularly in California. And then I began to see this spike, and they weren't talking about banishment; they were talking about disenrollments, which is a much more categorical termination of a native person's political and legal right to be identified as an indigenous person. Banishment is simply a social exclusion, right? And historically, we all have some familiarity with that concept related to the biblical notion of exile. But disenrollment, which is something that we rarely, uh, we did not do historically, uh, the earliest uh, disenrollment I could find in the research was in the 1950s involving the Northern Ute. And again, that was over money, as Gabe pointed out. Um, and so, but it's been that spike uh, with the gaming wealth in 1990s, along with some uh, some some compensation from various judgment funds, that's led to this significant surge in banishment. I mean, in disenrollment. Um, banishment is typically associated with crime uh, and, 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 and and gang activity and drug activity um, and, and violence against um, members of a native community. Disenrollment almost invariably is connected to family squabbles, gaming revenue, uh, personal vendettas, and tribal tribal corruption. Um, and so I really want to applaud Gabe sitting there with you all for the critically important work that he's doing in representing the disenrollees and those facing disenrollment uh, from this uh, scourge that um, is leaving a real blemish on our, our indigenous cultural identities. And the good thing is through conversations like this, there's been a reawakening or a re-education about disenrollment. Mm-hmm. I have to confess that when I started this advocacy, I didn't think that disenrollment was anything other than just part of the process because I didn't stop to really think critically about it. And now I realized it was never part of our process, historically speaking. Mm-hmm. It was introduced to us along with blood quantum and residential, meaning reservation residential requirements in 1934. And it is now decimating us through our own devices and in our own hands. But when I ask my disenrollee clients, for example, if you know your language, can you tell me any word that comes remotely close to the word disenrollment? They'll say, no, we can't. There's, there's no word other than maybe banishment, which is distinct, that uh, we can even articulate that, it, that captures the notion, let alone the word disenrollment. It's wholly non-indigenous. But we, through uh, you know, the legacy of boarding school and reorganization and termination and even self-determination in some respects, when you bootstrap that with capitalism gaming, we've sort of been brainwashed to believe that this was somehow our way, and it's never been our way. It's completely foreign to us, and it's now basically uh, killing the Indians in our own hands. Disenrollment, and this is important, is never, ever about the truth of who belongs. It is always, in my experience, for an ulter- ulterior motive, such as sustaining power and wealth. And what they ask disenrollees to do, and put yourself in those shoes for a minute, is to prove their ancestry or prove they belong. I've had, I've had disenrollees been asked to go find their great-grandma's birth certificate from the late 1800s. Or to go find some uh, record of their great-great-grandma, proceeding to that. Now, keep in mind, we didn't count as citizens till the 1920s. Yeah. Natives, especially Native women in the late 1800s, didn't count for just about any reason. So there aren't so-called vital records like death certificates or birth certificates or even marriage records that you can go back to in the late 1800s to prove that your great-grandma is who you say she was now in, in 2018. That is the proverbial gun that has been placed to the head of my clients and disenrollees, and it's a complete farce and has nothing to do with the truth of who belongs. 
Since our tribes have always had other ways of determining who belongs in our community, kinship-wise, adoption-wise, clan-wise, other ways, potentially that means that we could incorporate folks into our nations that have no discernible tribal ancestry. And Tommy actually wrote about that in his Law Review article. There's really any variety of ways that that could look like or the form that that could take. And kind of the central thrust of my paper was that tribes need to take a hard look at themselves and their past and where they are now and figure out what it is, how they wanted to define themselves going forward in the future. Cabe had touched on this before about different ways, non-biological ways that people could become incorporated into a tribe through adoption or marriage or any number of other ways. And so essentially, as we start to think about the different ways that tribes could define membership outside of blood quantum, I thought that it was worth exploring the concept of opening up that membership to people that didn't have any native ancestry necessarily, but had some other specific connection to the tribe that reflected the kinds of values that we thought were important in tribal members. That's sort of the internal component. I think there's also an external component that comes into play and in, in about the quote from Scalia where he highlighted the blood quantum of baby Veronica. And that is that the way that the outside culture basically defines native is by blood quantum. That's become just the standard that everyone uses. I'm sure we've all gotten many times the question of how Indian are you? Mm. And yeah, and by that they only ever mean what is your blood quantum. That mm. Those two ideas are synonymous for the outside culture. The idea that we could define, redefine membership or citizenship in a tribe to not have any necessary ancestry requirement could help to start to shift that conversation away from these are racial groups purely and what it means to be Indian is how racial you are to these are actual political entities that have real relationships and real sovereignty that needs to be respected outside of just their blood percentages and how native the outside culture thinks they look or are. Mm-hmm. So I, I appreciate what you just said. I, I've been, in some of my latest writings, asking us to beg the question, are we even nations, mm-hmm. as John Marshall declared us to be, in part to dispossessive of our lands? Or are we at our core still kinship societies before the United States put any um, term on us? If we are nations and citizens makes some sense um, in terms of the sensibility of nationhood. But the United States came up with this idea that we're members. And so now you have all these different sort of norms, but I I do think we need to be more careful about the language. That's why I say I belong to Round Valley. Mm. Um, I descend from Nomalaki and Konkau. And I've sort of taught myself to do that lately rather than say I'm enrolled Round Valley. Um, Because enrollment, like disenrollment, meaning putting names on a roll or taking them off or on a census or off is not the way we decided who belonged. Mm-hmm. And again, there was, there was no tradition of telling somebody they didn't belong. Mm-hmm. So I think we should deconstruct nationhood on some level, at least in the form of the question that there was some government that was greater than the people and they're in a relationship. Um, not to say that we need to do away with nationhood, because I think if we did, it would be political suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, but in sort of like a post-colonial way, we need to embrace who we are, who we were, sort of what we become and try to figure out the best of all of those things. Uh, at Round Valley, we do operate by lineal descent. And it, it's imperfect because I was enrolled because I directly descend from an original Latee, which my, was which my great-great-grandma uh, in the late 1800s. Uh, allotment, of course, was designed to exterminate us. So the base role, if you would, for, for me and my family is an allotment that corresponds to a trail of tears. And my great-grandma... Uh, being born unto land that was in a concentration camp. But from her was, of course, my grandma and my mother and now me and my children, and we all are enrolled based on the the simple lineal descent from one to the next, dating back to my great-grandma. And I believe that is, although imperfect, because it still has this allotment legacy and this termination legacy, uh, I'm grateful that it's not a matter of blood quantum, uh, and uh, I think it's more consistent than, uh, with kinship than, than not. 
if we don't have blood quantum, let's imagine something else. What does that look like? If we abolish blood quantum tomorrow, what alternatives could we have for determining tribal citizenship? Well, that would that would be up to each individual Native community to 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 dig into uh, the residue of their own memories and see how historically they defined who belonged to their community. And that memory is still alive in, in tribes. I mean, in some tribes, it's been punctuated, it's been punctuated and perforated and shredded to a, a point. But we have ways to create new traditions, right? Traditions get de- developed um, constantly by by human societies. Uh, we're not just have we don't have to just look at the past. We can look to the present and look ahead and come up with a new tradition that will determine our identity as a native people. And it just means that the entire community coming together and deciding what are the criteria, what are the values, what are the understandings that we should hold as a people that are going to guide us, that, 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 that comport with our ancestors, but also that, that deal with the reality of now and that, and that will prepare us well for, our, for the future for our children. And I think that, that knowledge is, is inherent in every indigenous community if they will just take the time to sit down and talk to one another. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm learning a lot about the rest of, you know, like great greater mainstream Native communities because I must be, you know, I mean, I think Oklahoma gave me a, a good understanding, but I hadn't realized how lucky I was that we have our clan system because we don't have to, you know, go through the, the difficult process of trying to figure out another way to define ourselves. But I think that ultimately a clan system is a family system. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, whatever the name of that clan is, but family system seems seems like makes the most sense, but I might be biased. I am curious. Clearly, we are a group of folks who does not buy into this idea of blood quantum that understands the context, that understands where it comes from, that understands the implications of it. But why is it that communities do hold on so tight to this idea? What are the arguments that you hear for blood quantum? Because we can sit here and say our grandchildren will literally not be able to enroll in the tribe. And there will definitely still be folks who say, no, we need to keep our one quarter blood quantum requirement. So why is that? Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'll go first. I, <laughs> I'll go first. Well, actually, I just came from general council where this was discussed in, our, in my community. And um, I think that I think the impacts of colonization have to be un- understood and felt, you know, in, in the the ways that the boarding school era so dramatically impacted our thinking that it's hard to say, I think, in our own communities that these things that we're reiterating to each other even belong to us in the first place. And I think we say it over and over and over and over and over again so many times, it's in our blood, that we we begin to believe these ideas. And so I, I, when I hear people fight, stand up for blood quantum, the, the main argument that I hear is that if we don't have some way of identifying our children and who belongs, then what are we going to be? You know, if, if we continuously marry non-Indians after six generations, you know, do are we even going to look like ourselves or sound like ourselves or are any of our traditions even going to be alive? And I think what they're talking about is... Um, kinship right and is the fact that people are marrying outside of our communities leaving and not coming back and assimilating themselves into western belief systems and not necessarily maintaining that traditional stahobes way of life but the way of understanding that is has been convoluted as as something that's related to blood and so that's what i think i hear over and over and over again when i hear people wanting to maintain blood quantum I don't know. I can't think of anything else. I've heard that, and I've also heard the more cynical kind of flip side of the disenrollment thing, which is that if we open it up and let everyone join, then tons of people are going to join just for benefits and not actually participate in the tribe or have any other relationship other than to collect a check or something. That's something that I've heard expressed as a concern before. Well, for sure, and it's complicated because we do have plenty of tribal members that participate in that way. I mean, I come from a per capita tribe. I come from a place where um, 
you know, many people will have several babies just for the sake of getting more per capita. And they don't, you know, like, and they're, they're not necessarily great citizens and they're not giving back to the community particularly. And maybe they're very draining on our economy in some ways. <laughs> and, you know, like, that's just the truth of what's going on on our res. That you can't say it any other way. And, and so that's, you know, ah, what a messy thing to say. But, um, but it, how do we then create a healthy whole nation? Where people have opportunities to participate and become whole people, I, you know, I, I don't know. Doctor Wilkins, you have to know the answer. <laughs> I mean, this is this is the real conundrum that I think all of our nations uh, find themselves in. At least those that have a blood quantum measurement in their in their uh, legal code or in their constitution or whatever governing mechanism that they have, uh, because it was an outside originally an outside imposition thrust upon us for expedient, economic expedient reasons by the federal government. Um, and yet we've taken it on and we've internalized it. And now we use it as a way to exclude, as Gabe said earlier, uh, people who we don't want to be a part of our community, right, as, as you just pointed out. Uh, and, and we also think it as a, as a badge of honor, right? No one else gets to be defined by blood except us, right? Uh, and so there's there's this there's this weird sort of you know thing that we hear the word I hear the word unique applied all the time to Indian law and Indian policy. Indian law is unique. Indian treaties are unique. Everything is unique. Well, we're not that unique. We're just human societies trying to find a way to make it right. And yet that notion of uniqueness we we have bought into that to the point where we perpetuate some of these misconceptions that are leading and causing great damage to our very souls and to our very identities. And unless we find some way to redefine that, to recalculate that, and I, I'm convinced, as you pointed out earlier, that it really should be and could be rooted in the clan systems. Many tribes no longer have clan systems, but why not create a new clan system? Mm -hmm. That's possible. I mean, Vine DeLore talked about that all the time in many of his books. He really strongly encouraged tribes, if they had clans, to fortify them, and if they didn't have them, to create them, because that is ultimately linked to our kinship, and that is a way to socially ground us uh, into a into a given landscape, and really help guide us uh, into the future. Mm. So I, I I think it's a combination of things, but it's a conundrum. And until we can identify as that and understand what's at stake, we're not going to be able to get our way out of it. I just want to bring up one question for all of you. I, um, we did an episode called Love in the Time of Blood Quantum. So, <laughs> you know, there's also this way that this plays out in our own lives. Do we marry Native people? Do we make the conscious decision? Do I, as a woman, make a conscious decision to only date somebody from my own tribe? Uh, given the current blood quantum policies and given the fact that I don't have voting rights in both of my nations. Um, and, or do I just hope that things will change. So how, what choices have you made in your own life? Are you, um, what did you do? <laughs> Go ahead, you can start, Tommy. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I signed up for this thinking it was a dating thing, so. <laughs> there will be a buzzer. Yeah. So I'm doing my best, but uh, no, it's, it's definitely hard. I've, I mean, thinking about this kind of stuff is what started me thinking about the blood quantum problem generally. And I guess my real answer is, would be that I'm trying to get my tribe to move away from that system of blood quantum um, for myself and for other people. I don't feel like in some of the, in a number of the stories that I've heard of people trying to find someone from their tribe and that being essentially their only qualification for dating someone, I feel like that's often worked out very poorly kind of for <laughs> their families. Um, in the long run. Mm. And that's something that is worrying to me and not something that I think necessarily is beneficial for our tribe. Charlotte? Well, um, so I'm lucky enough to be uh, a woman Haudenosaunee Confederacy, which means that I will pass a clan down no matter what, um, which allows me to choose whomever I please. But <clears throat> on that note, I would prefer someone of Haudenosaunee background, if possible, um, or Ngwahunwe, which is just native background, because I do feel like 
having um, that family kinship on both sides is really beneficial, especially in this day and age when there's so much complexity to navigate about identity, about, um, you know, your connection to the land. Um, I don't feel like I'm harnessed by any kind of blood quantum because I don't get any benefits. So I don't think that my kid, I don't see anything in there. Like there's no motivation for me to get, to have them to have Mohawk status. They will, if they need it, if they need to go back and live at home, they can, you know, petition the government to buy land. I would still have to petition the Mohawk Nation or the BIA government to be able to purchase land on my territory. But because I've been away at school and living in cities for so long, I just don't, I'm completely, you know, like not dependent on any kind of membership benefits. I don't feel like that's going to ever be a determining factor in who I choose. It's more about um, having someone who's going to also put their their uh, concentration on um, wellness and from an, an indigenous perspective and um, keeping that that uh, or keeping that good that good mind going forward so that my grandkids will have whatever they need here instead of, you know, instead of having to worry about, you know, money or if they're going to have a territory to live on, they'll be fine. You know, we've been fine on the East Coast for, you know, hundreds of years under colonial government systems. We'll, we'll, we'll still be here if, you know, I can pass down that, that mindset. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, to me, love is love. And I fell in love with a non-Indian woman who I married and, like I said, is now my inspiration. And we have two children who belong or are, quote-unquote, enrolled to the Round Valley Indian tribes. Um, But what's important for me and my wife is health. And what's important for me is sobriety and and living and having some ability to be a father to my children. Um, And so I found a partner who is who is able to keep me healthy and vice versa, uh, to participate in my sobriety, to participate in kind of a spiritual well-being as a family so that I can just live and be a dad and sustain myself and my family for sake of my daughters. Coming from a family who's been out of like all of our families with drug and alcohol abuse, suicide, early onset of death, diabetes, um, for me, the value that I just cared about most was, or values were love, life, wellness, and sobriety. And that's what I found in my wife and in my family. And I, I cherish those things. My first wife uh, was Navajo. I married when I was 26. And we raised three children. Um, and when each of them came of age, we asked them which nation they wanted to be enrolled in because. We wanted him to have the choice. I married into the Navajo Nation because they're matrilineal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, my kids all abandoned my tribe and joined the Navajo Nation. <laughs> so they're all Navajos. Um, I was divorced several years ago. I remarried uh, to a beautiful non-Native woman. And um, uh, I married for love, like Gabe said, both times. But the second time was the real kicker for me. Um, and so it's all good. Um, and um, I don't have to worry about enrolling children now or anything like that, but knowing what I know now, um, it would be something that I would be thinking about much more if I would have known about it at the time I first got married, because it, it, it's an important consideration for, for many people, um, and um, because as we know, depending on who you get introduced to, some people want to know whether you're full blood or half blood or quarter blood whether you belong to a fairly recognized tribe or a non-recognized tribe, whether your tribe signed treaties or did not sign treaties. So there's all these dimensions that come into play when it comes to a uh, question that people have when they're uh, out on, on doing the snagging route. But uh, <laughs> I'm glad I'm past all that now, and I'm happy. Uh, <laughs> they don't call it that anymore are. either. <laughs> <laughs> 
the challenge with a lot of these conversations around notions of blood and belonging is that so many different things get conflated in the process. So we have conversations about DNA ancestry, about blood fractions, about citizenship, about enrollment, about belonging, and all of them have come together in this big mess to be how we determine who we are as Indigenous people. And that is super complicated and not something that there are easy answers for. But it becomes very clear when we're talking to all these folks how much all of these disparate pieces come together to make just a really complicated mess. Absolutely. This is a very complicated conversation, and it's a conversation that's worth having it's important that we continue to look at our policies, our practices, and our procedures and ask ourselves if we're working towards inclusivity as a nation. Are we nation building or are we nation detracting? <laughs> and I think that we especially have to have this conversation about how this affects us in our everyday lives and how does it affect our health and our wellness and our sense of belonging, which is why this next episode that we're doing is a really critical part of this conversation. So tune in next week for the second part of this episode and final release for season one as we turn our conversation inward for a more intimate discussion on blood quantum and how it affects our love lives with our production team, Juanita Toledo from Jemez, Brooke Sweeney from Blackfeet and Salish. I think you're going to like it. It's juicy and spicy and all the good things. <laughs> uh, special thanks to Charlotte Logan, Gabe Galanda, Tommy Miller, and Professor David Wilkins for coming all the way out to the Tacoma Art Museum, for Skyping in, and for joining this conversation. We really appreciate you and send our love and blessings to you wherever you are. And huge thanks to Teo Shantz for continuing to do the work production. We love you. And big tea seed and wado to Ahum, Jay Oluo, and Bryant Moore for the killer music on this episode. As always, if you're loving the content, please, you know, head on over to iTunes leave a comment, subscribe. You can also, uh, if you're really into it, <laughs> go to our Patreon and send us some love there. Or, you know, if you would like to get involved, we're planning the last couple episodes for season two right now. And we would love to hear some of your thoughts and concerns. What would you like to hear us talk about? Send us a voicemail on our website, allmyrelations.com. Oh my